Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to season six of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Forn. For this episode, I am thrilled to have gotten time with Mr. Johan Hari. He is a such a prolific journalist, broadcaster, TED Talker, author. His book, Lost Connections, which is what we talk about here, it has been a New York Times bestseller. He's in the middle of writing his third and fourth book, and he has taken time out to chat to me about... I guess anxiety at a much wider societal level and the seven non-biological reasons that we're all struggling so much with depression and anxiety which he puts together as two things that often go hand in hand so if you're someone who has struggled with depression this will be a particularly relevant episode for you it's very eye-opening and really makes you think about a lot of the cultural systems and conventions which in within which we live that are probably fueling our anxiety and making us believe that so much of the problem is our fault as opposed to us living in a world where we just have psychological needs and emotional needs that are unmet for the most part so Johan explains it far more um, articulately than I ever could so I hope you enjoy it his book Lost Connections is widely available now. He references at the end his website, all his social media, so do follow him there. And thank you so much for, for tuning in. As always, I appreciate the feedback and the reviews and the nice, obviously the nice comments. I don't really want any nasty comments. And yeah, so enjoy and thank you. Johan Harry, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me for Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. I appreciate how incredibly busy you are at the moment. You are deep into writing book number three and four and God knows how many. So thank you for, <laughs> for carving out this time. Oh, uh, hey, Caroline. It's really nice to talk to you. I wish we were doing this in person in Dublin. But um, one day it will happen. The world will reopen. 
One day. Well, look, this is good as we can do right now. Um, and I'm thrilled to have you on. Obviously, you are a prolific journalist, broadcaster, incredible TED talker. Your books have both been New York Times bestsellers. Just so many strings to your bow. Um, the, the theme of this podcast series really drills down into anxiety more so than mm. depression. As that's been my experience, I, I struggled with really crippling anxiety for quite a long time. And it's just offer, we offer people, listeners, you know, different people's stories and experiences of, of how it manifests for them or how they got through it. And then lots of experts who share better ways that we can cope. So I'm really interested to chat to you before we get into more of the stuff from Lost Connections. If you can tell me a bit about your own experience with anxiety in particular and when that kind of rose for you, how, how it manifested for you. You know, it's so interesting. I was just thinking as you were saying that. When I started doing the research for Lost Connections, I thought I was going to look at depression and anxiety as separate things. But one thing that was so interesting is, so for the book, obviously, I travelled, as you know, all over the world, uh, over 30,000 miles, and I interviewed kind of hundreds of the leading experts about what causes depression and anxiety, and most importantly, what solves them. And one thing that was really fascinating to me is that, Basically, everything that causes depression causes anxiety, and everything that causes anxiety causes depression. Actually, the National Institute of Health in the in the US stopped funding um, them as research into them as separate things. And I started to think of them in a funny way. The analogy that I came into my head—it's not—it's not a great analogy, but I started to think they're like this: anxiety and depression are like the same song covered by very different bands. <laughs> so if like depression is the theme covered by like some emo band, and anxiety is like the same song but played by Slipknot or like yeah, some heavy some, metal like, band Japanese or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly, like one of those one of those K-pop where they're just like ah! <laughs> screaming all the time. Um, so I think in a way, I just want to say that as thinking about you saying about, you know, uh, there's different, and you're, and you're right, we do think about them as different, and I definitely did, but actually there's, and of course they manifest differently, but mm. I think there's a, many more similarities than there are differences. Okay. Um, so for me, you, you know, the reason I wrote the book is uh, everything I ever write, I write because there's some mystery that I want to understand for myself, right? So my first book was about addiction, because we had a lot of addiction in my family, my you know, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I wanted to figure out, you know, what causes addiction? What can we do to help the people we love with addiction problems? Where has succeeded in overcoming addiction? And, and, with, and with, 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 with my book about depression and anxiety, Lost Connections, it was very much, there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. One is that I, when I wrote the book, when I finished it, I was 40 years old and 42 now. And all throughout my lifetime, depression and anxiety have been going up. And I wanted to understand why, right? Why do they keep going up with every year that passes? And I wanted to understand that for a very personal reason, which is that, you know, since I was a child, really, I'd had a lot of depression and anxiety. And, and I wanted to, to get to the bottom of that. So for me, yeah, just it was kind of standard low mood, anxiety, pessimism, um, you know, not being able to summon up a positive vision of the future and just being very kind of, yeah, anxious and, and depressed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, so that was kind of uh, my experience. And I took chemical antidepressants for 13 years, took the edge off for a while, but then the feelings came back. So I took higher and higher doses. And at the end of it, I was still pretty depressed and anxious. 
So that was my kind of my experience. Obviously, the different reasons that you you say that we collectively experience depression, anxiety relate to, I mean, all of us. But there's always obviously personal circumstance there. So did you ever get any clarity or does it even matter to you? Um, I, so some people kind of need to do that whole Freudian thing of going back and really teasing apart the reason, the things that brought them to this point of anxiety, whereas some people just say, look, I'm here now. I'm anxious. And all that matters is how I kind of go forward. So did you feel a need to unpack where it had really come from for you i did but for a specific reason so from all these experts i interviewed i learned that there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety and there's lots of evidence that if you understand the underlying causes you can build more meaningful solutions and there were two of the causes that i really felt had particularly played out in my own life i mean several of them have but there were two that i found if i'm honest quite difficult to learn about Mm-hmm. And I'll just tell you about one of them now. We may come to the one later. But so to explain it, I have to, I think I have to tell you the story of someone. And for about what two and a half minutes, you're going to think, what the hell is he talking about? Why is he telling me this story? Yeah. It led to a real breakthrough in the understanding of depression and anxiety. So just bear with me. Okay. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor in California uh, called Vincent Felitti was given a quite difficult job. He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were the big, one of the big um, medical providers in California. And they said, look, we've got a problem. Every year, obesity goes up and up uh, since the since the early 70s. And it's causing all these health problems. And nothing we do is working. We give people, you know, uh, diet advice. It doesn't work. We give people personal trainers. It doesn't work. Just figure out what the hell we can do. So they gave him quite a big budget to just do blue skies research into what they could do to deal with the growing obesity crisis. So Dr. Felitti starts to work with 250 severely obese people, people who weigh more than 400 pounds. So people who are in, you know, in a bad way. And he's thinking, well, what can we do? What can we do? And one day, he's interviewing these people, and one day he has an idea that seems, and in many ways is quite stupid. He asked himself, what would happen if severely obese people literally stopped eating and we gave them like vitamin shots so they didn't get scurvy or whatever, would they just burn through the fat stores in their bodies and become healthy, you know, get down to a healthier weight? So with an absolute shit ton of medical supervision, they try it with these 250 severely obese people. It worked. So there's a woman who, who, um, this isn't her real name. I'm saying this to protect her medical confidentiality. I'll call her Susan. A woman called Susan, weighed more than 400 pounds, got down to 138 pounds. It was incredible. Everyone's celebrating. Her family are calling Dr. Felitti to say, oh, you saved our daughter's life. And then one day something happened that no one expected. She cracked. She went to KFC or whatever it was. She starts obsessively eating. And quite soon she was back at a dangerous weight. Not where she'd been, but at about, you know, an unhealthy weight. And Dr. Felitti called her in and said, Susan, what happened? What happened? She looked down. She felt really ashamed. She said, I don't know. I don't know. And Dr. Felitti said to her, well, is there anything that happened that day that you cracked that didn't happen any other day? Turned out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan. She went to a bar um, and a man hit on her, not in a horrible way, in a nice way. And she felt really freaked out. And she goes and she starts obsessively eating. Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the program. He discovered that more than 60% of them had made their weight gain after they had been sexually abused or assaulted. This thing that seemed so irrational, right? An extreme weight gain, in fact, had an entirely rational function for many of the people in the program. It was protecting them 
from sexual attention, which they had very good reason to want to be protected from. But this is a small study, right? It's 250 people. That's such a weird, big finding, 60%. But Dr. Felicity's like, we've got to do more research into this. And this is where it led to a breakthrough in understanding of anxiety and depression. So it goes to the Centre for Disease Control and it gets funding to do a massive study. So anyone who came for medical healthcare in San Diego for an entire year, doesn't matter what for, headaches, schizophrenia, broken leg, anything, was given a questionnaire that was in two parts. First part said, did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, neglect, severe cruelty, that kind of thing. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And at first it was only going to say obesity, but luckily for us at the last minute, they added a load of other stuff, including depression, anxiety, suicide attempts, addiction. And so at the end of the year, they got all this data and they add it up. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four, two to four times more likely uh, to have developed depression, anxiety, or addiction. But when you got into the multiple categories, the figures were just crazy. If you had experienced six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. You just, you very rarely get figures like this in, wow. in, in, in science, right? They're just, it's extraordinary. One of the scientists involved, Dr. Robert Anders said to me, he realized that, that it, it's like, we had, it's like there'd been a fire inside lots of people. And for years, we've been th we've been focusing on the smoke, the okay. external manifestations problem, rather than focusing on the fire. He said he realized we had to we had to shift when someone is showing a problem like anxiety or obesity or addiction. We need to shift from saying what's wrong with you to start saying what happened to you. And the reason I say that tell you that story in, in answer to your question, Caroline, is because for me. So I remember when I went to interview Dr. Felitti the first time in San Diego, right? He's a lovely old man, hugely admirable. You'd really like him if you met him. And I was so angry as he was speaking that I, I let, finished the interview early and I left. And I remember going to the beach in San Diego and being like, what is wrong with you? Like, this is lovely old man who's made this really important breakthrough. Why are you so angry? And it, in my case, when, um, when I was a child, I had experienced some very e extreme and horrific things from some adults in my life. And I didn't want to think about that. Yeah. I didn't want to give these individuals power over me now. I didn't want to think it had any role in my life at all. But the reason I'm really glad that I went back and I carried on interviewing him and I learned more is because of what happened next in his story. So... After they'd done all this research in San Diego, they gathered all this evidence. Uh, they've suddenly got all these people who've told them that they had experienced childhood trauma, whether it was sexual abuse or, or, or whatever it was. So their doctor, their GP was told, don't call them in. But next time they come in, say to them something like this. They were given a little script and it said something like, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened to you. I'm sorry that you weren't protected. You should have been protected. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people did not want to talk about it, but 60% of people did. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. And then it was randomly assigned. Some of them were told, we can give you a therapist. You can talk about it more. What was incredible was, and this was then monitored. What was incredible was 
just five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, this should never have happened, led to a significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who were referred to a therapist had an even bigger fall. And this is something, there's a huge body of scientific evidence about this now. It's not the trauma that fucks you. It's not the trauma that makes you depressed and anxious. It's about the, sh it's the shame about the trauma. It's the internalization of the trauma. And if you can find safe places to release that shame and trauma, it massively reduces anxiety and depression. So for me, it wasn't about, you know, you put it rightly, you said, you know, oh, there's this kind of Freudian thing, just the excavating of the trauma. For me, that's not, that, that has value, but that has value because it leads to the next part. And the next part is where you realize, you know, you carry this shame and this sense of responsibility for it. And then you realize, but of course I wasn't responsible for it. I was a child. Of course I shouldn't be ashamed of this. You know, and it's that release of that shame. There's loads of evidence about this. I can talk to you more about it if you want. Mm -hmm. But it's the releasing of shame that is so important in reducing anxiety and depression. And how did that impact you then at that moment to be much older, obviously getting that clarity and being able to release that shame in your own way? Does it all come crashing to the surface or did you feel it dissolve for you that you a lot of what you've been holding all this time it comes in waves and I wouldn't want to tell it like a kind of you know it's not some magical moment like you pull yeah. back the curtain and you see the Wizard of Oz was just a little wizened old man right it's <laughs> it's um it's a gradual process and there are steps forward and steps back mm -hmm. for me yeah it's a cumulative process and over time the, the, a there's a relief in it making sense and this to me is the important thing I learned about, the most important thing I learned about anxiety and depression, that they make sense. We are taught in our culture to think about anxiety and depression as malfunctions, as physical, biological malfunctions in our, in our brains, right? Now, there is some biological contribution to these problems for some people that is real, and we can talk about that. But, but that is actually um, a very small part of a much bigger picture. And when you understand the bigger picture, what you see is anxiety and depression are largely signals that something is going wrong. And if you think of it as a malfunction, there's not much you can do with that. But if you think of it as a signal, you can understand that and you can you can begin to get to the deeper causes of it. And you can begin to with anything. If you understand what's causing it, you can better deal with it, right? That's yeah. true of any problem, any problem in life at all. If you don't have an accurate map of your pain, you can't find your way out, you know? You touched on the subject of shame there, which I think is, is really huge. Obviously, when it comes to something traumatic, something tangible that happens to someone, there's shame around that. But I also think there's a lot of shame around the experience of depression and anxiety. I mean, I certainly was ashamed to say that I wasn't able to cope when I didn't have in what I thought was in my head was like a good enough reason to justify why I was struggling so much with anxiety. Do you think there's a lot of shame there? And that's probably probably keeping us going on the anxiety feedback loop? There is. And I think precisely because shame is such a problem, we need to have a more honest conversation about the solution to that because, and I found this really challenging when I learned about the science of it. So in our culture, the main way we try to deal with the shame that people feel about depression and anxiety is to say, this is just a biological malfunction and you shouldn't shame people for a biological problem, 
right? Mm -hmm. In fact, the evidence shows that isn't a good way of reducing stigma. Firstly, it's not, firstly, it's only telling a small part of the story. So there's very good scientific evidence. It's in all the psychiatry textbooks. No one really denies it, but we don't talk about it this way. There are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological causes, like your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems. Mm -hmm. There are psychological causes, like to give an obvious one, trauma. We were just talking about that. And there are social causes, like to give an obvious example, loneliness, right? So biological causes, exactly. The the fancy name for this is the biopsychosocial model. But what we've ended up with, as um, Professor Lawrence Kiermaier put it to me, I interviewed him in Montreal, we've ended up with basically a bio, bio, bio model. Where actually, we, we almost always, doctors only talk about the biological model, the biological aspect, which is real, but one part of the bigger picture. And we almost always offer predominantly biological solutions like chemical antidepressants which can give some relief to some people and have some real value but the best scientific evidence shows most people taking them are like me and become depressed again so while they can offer some relief they're ultimately not solving the problem for most people that doesn't mean people taking them should stop it doesn't mean they don't have value but it just means we have to have a bigger broader menu of options now the reason that relates to stigma is we tell this story so the way out of stigma is just to say it's just a biological problem. Now, I think there are issues around that. It's, it's too simplistic. It can often cut people off from understanding other causes of their pain. When I went to my doctor when I was 17 and she just said, well, you've just got a problem in your brain. It actually diverted me for a long time from thinking about that childhood trauma I'd experienced and some of the other causes that were playing out in my life. But most importantly, there's a woman called Professor Sheila Mehta, who I interviewed. She's at the... Um, University of Alabama, who did really interesting research on this. It turns out telling people that depressed and anxious people just have a biological problem does not reduce stigma. Um, In fact, if you look at HIV AIDS or leprosy, no one ever doubted that HIV AIDS and leprosy were biological phenomena, right? There was a shit ton of stigma about them. Actually, there's no evidence that telling someone something has a biological cause reduces stigma. In fact, it can reinforce stigma by making people think, oh, these are people that are really different to us, right? There is a path that reduces stigma. It's about saying that pain makes sense. That actually, um, you know, everyone listening knows they have natural physical needs, obviously, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And and, and a key part of what's going on, it's not everything, it's important to stress that, but a key part of what's going on with anxiety and depression is that they are signals that our deeper needs as human beings are not being met in this culture that we've created, right? Yeah. And actually, when you explain, this is something, not some biological defect that just happens to a minority of people. This is something that is a signal of the things that we are lacking in our culture. This is a signal that something's going wrong for most of us in our society and culture in some ways, right? There are some good things about the way we live as well, of course. There's evidence Professor Meta found, and I can talk about how if you want, but just to give you the headline, she found that actually stressing that anxiety and depression are responses to the way we're living does actually reduce stigma in a way telling people it's just a biological defect 
doesn't reduce stigma. And that I think is, is really important. We've got to actually use the messages that reduce stigma that are most truthful and that are most effective at doing that. On the subject of stigma, there's certainly in Ireland, there's a lot of stigma that still exists around medication. And in my experience, and I can only speak for myself, I felt like I had, I was so hard at work addressing all of the imbalances in the way I was living because I didn't want to think that I couldn't sort of solve it that way. I didn't want to think I was quote unquote, you know, so weak that I needed medication. And I felt like there was, I had so much stigma around eventually. I mean, I did go on medication and I came to that decision saying, I'm really trying to address everything here, but I guess what starts off as maybe the social and the psychological stuff ends up manifesting as biological things that then perpetuate it and keep it going. So for, for me, I, I, need, I felt that I needed to consider medication as an option just to help me get my head above water. And I think there's a lot of people anyway who listen to my show who are, you know, even by the fact that they're listening to the series, they're, they're interested, they're curious in, in looking at the imbalances and how we live and the, psych, the psychological part and the social part of it. And there's still a stigma at addressing the biological part that there's a fear around there being something biologically wrong. Do you think that's like a possibility as well? That that's another stigma creeping in that we people are turning away from medication when perhaps they might benefit from it? Or is it more a case of they're turning to it too quickly? I think even because I, I was in exactly the same position, even that binary that you were thinking in, right, which I, I thought in as well, which is either... I individually have to carry this and change myself or I have to biologically change myself. And those are the two choices, right? It's mm-hmm. sometimes called like brain or blame, right? Mm-hmm. Either I deal with my brain or I blame myself. There are more options than that. And there are wider ways of thinking about it than that. I want to come back to the specific question you asked about drugs, but there was a moment this really opened up for me in the research for Lost Connections. I went to interview a guy called Dr. Derek Summerfield who's a South African psychiatrist. And he happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in Cambodia, right? They'd never had them before in Cambodia. And so the local doctors, the Cam- he was researching something else, it was just there by coincidence. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, said to him like, well, what are antidepressants? And he explained, and they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like, I don't know, Jinko Biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the Americans and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg. And after a while, he goes back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where you got blown up. The guy started to cry a lot. He was extremely anxious. After a while, he just refused to get out of bed. He developed what we would call classic depression. This is when the Cambodian doctor said to Derek, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek was like, well, what is it? Um, This is when the Cambodian doctors explained. They went and sat with this guy. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, but him as an isolated individual, he as an isolated individual, could not solve that problem alone. One of the doctors figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. 
they said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've been raised to think about depression and anxiety the way we have, it sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years now. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not in the main a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And the reason I say that, what that helped me to see is, I had been stuck in thinking, okay, either you seek a biological solution, and I had done that for 13 years, and frankly, it, hadn't, it gave me a little bit of relief at first, and, and, and some bad side effects as well, and ultimately didn't do that much good for me, although it did give me some relief first, and that was worth having. Um, so either you seek the biological solution, or Jesus, you as an individual have got to do all this work to get yourself out of all your problems. That's not how the Cambodians thought about it. They, they weren't thinking either in the biological mode or in the individual mode. They were like, as a group, together we need to help solve these problems. So I don't want to dodge the question about drugs, though, because it's, it's and stigma about drugs. It's very important. No one should ever be ashamed about taking chemical antidepressants. Some people get some relief from them. I did for a while. That's really valuable. Anyone listening to, 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 to this who's in that position, I have nothing to offer you but love and congratulations. I also think we do need to be honest about the limitations of chemical antidepressants as well. Um, the best scientific evidence about chemical antidepressants, the long-term research, which is called the STAR-D trial, I mean, there's actually incredibly little long evidence into the long-term effects of these drugs, but it's the best study we've got, found that most people get some relief at first, but over time do become depressed and anxious again, unfortunately. Um, I think, and I'm going beyond what that study says now, that's because there's some biological component, but there's a lot more going on. So I don't think our response to that should be to despair. And it, well, by the way, the study did find that wasn't everyone. There are some people who took them for a long time and it did seem to resolve their depression, but they were a minority. We've got to be honest about that. We shouldn't sell people. We shouldn't tell people something's going to solve their problem if most people who take it is ultimately not going to solve the problem. But if we're going to say that to people, which is the difficult truth, we then have to offer people a much more expanded model menu of options for what we do next, right? The most important thing I want to do is, you know, expand our understanding of what an antidepressant is. Um, anything that reduces depression and anxiety should be called an antidepressant, right? The last third of Lost Connections goes through seven different things that we might think of as antidepressants like that. So we've already talked about releasing the shame from childhood trauma, giving people safe spaces where they can release the shame from childhood trauma. Incredibly effective antidepressant, right? Massively reduces depression and anxiety. The cow for that farmer, very targeted people listening to him and helping build solutions. That was an antidepressant. I mean, I can talk about lots of others, but so I think we need to have a much, we've got a very, in our culture, we've developed an extremely limited way of talking and thinking about these problems and solving them. It's not that what we say has no truth in it. And it's not that the solution we offer doesn't help some people. What we say does have some truth and the solution we offer does help some people. But because it's such a small part of what's going on, and this isn't me saying this, this is the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world. And because our solutions are just so one dimensional, right? Yeah. Um, they are leaving lots of people out. And that's why we've got to have a much deeper conversation, which is not because so many people here, and I heard this, it's why it was so challenging doing the research for Lost Connections, 
very often you hear, oh, the, the biological solutions give some relief, but they're limited. Oh, fuck. So you're saying I've got to solve it all myself. That's mm. absolutely not what I'm saying. It, 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 in fact, that would be a cruel message. What we have to do is then deal with the underlying social reasons together on the kind of more Cambodian model. I remember a turning point for me when my anxiety was probably at its worst. And like you say, I mean, it was very much, I have this all on my shoulders. I need Mm. to figure this out. People saying, oh, you'll be fine. Or you've got this, that bloody phrase. Um, Actually, Mm. my, my, the second book I wrote, it's, it was called the confidence kit and it came out in America and they they renamed it. You got this. And I'm like, no, but sometimes you don't got this. I hate it. (laughs) But I remember saying to my, my husband, boy, he was my boyfriend at the time. Like, you know, I don't know how, I just didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have the first clue about anxiety, how to kind of navigate through it. And he said, look, we're going to figure this out. Like we, we're going to do our research. We're going to look at different things. We're going to figure this out. And just the language and the the word we, as opposed to you're going to figure this out, like you'll mm. be okay. It it massively changed. It kind of relaxed me into thinking that I'm not alone in it. And, I, and I'm very fortunate that I was in that position. I guess for people reading books, like this or, or trying to help their anxiety, they're always approaching it from a very individualistic um, way because they only can be responsible for themselves and their own actions. And, and what you're suggesting is more of like a, a collective so, social prescription. Is that right? Well, let me give a really, because that can just sound so woolly to people. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I totally <laughs> understand that. When I first heard people say, I was like, what, what? I don't understand what you mean. So let me give you a very concrete example. One of the heroes of my book is a man named Dr. Sam Everington. He's a doctor, a GP in East London, where I lived, a poor part of East London, where I lived for a long time, though sadly he was never my doctor. And Sam was really worried because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, um, he, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants at all. He prescribes them. Obviously, I don't do that. I'm not a doctor, but he prescribes them. But, but he could see two things really clearly. Firstly, that a lot of his patients, it lifted them a bit, but they remained depressed. And secondly, they were depressed and anxious for really obvious reasons, like loads of them were incredibly lonely. So one day, and there's a lot of scientific evidence that loneliness causes depression, although when you look at that science, it's a bit of a no shit Sherlock moment, but we have got lots of science for it. Um, So Sam Sam decided to, to, to try something different. Uh, which has now been tried in lots of places and scientifically monitored. So um, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know later. Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling anxiety for seven years. She was in a terrible state. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I want you to come to the doctor's offices twice a week and meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how shit you feel. You can do that if you want, but that's not the point of it. What we want is for you to find something meaningful that you can do together. So the first time the group meets, Lisa literally started vomiting anxiety. You know, she'd been shut away at her home for so long. It was so overwhelming. But the group starts talking. They were like, what could we do? There was a big area behind the doctor's offices that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just you know, a load of scrubland where dogs would go and shit. And the people in the group started talking. Now, these are inner city East London people. Like me, they didn't know anything about gardening. But they were like, you know, we could turn that into a garden. We could do that together. They started to take loads of books out of the library. They started to watch uh, gardening videos on YouTube. 
they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But, but they started to do something even more important. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go turn up and say, hey, what's wrong? If they had a problem together, they would start solving their problems. And the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study, this approach is called social prescribing. There was a study in Norway, a small study of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective in reducing anxiety as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason, right? Mm-hmm. It's dealing, this is something I saw all over the world in the research for the book, from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the underlying reasons why we feel so bad in the first place. Now, think about social prescribing. If that costs nothing, right? Or virtually nothing. You can pay staff to do it or it can be done on a voluntary basis. Um, every single doctor's office in the world should have a social prescribing wing. It should be the first recourse when someone comes in with anxiety and depression. Are you lonely? Yes. Let's try this, right? And alongside the option of drugs, to be sure, alongside all sorts of other options, so we can talk about some of the other ones and um, they go through a lot in the book. But that that's, that's a model that, as the World Health Organization says we should be, is attentive to the social and psychological causes of depression and anxiety, instead of only looking at the biology, although it is important to look at the biology as well. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. that's a very concrete thing. That's not fa- some airy fairy, or can I give you just one other example? I'll just say, it can say it more quickly than that. Yeah. Again, this should be a no shit Sherlock uh, insight, <laughs> but um, financial insecurity makes people depressed and anxious, right? I can tell you all about scientific evidence, but honestly, I think you, anyone listening needs any scientific evidence for that, right? It's blindingly obvious. Um, in Canada, in the 1970s, they did an experiment. They chose a town called Dauphin. It's in Manitoba. And they gave a huge number of people in that town just a guaranteed basic wage. It was the equivalent of about 10,000 euros in today's money. They just gave it to them. They said, there's nothing you have to do for this and there's nothing you can do that means we'll take it away from you unless you go to prison, which is what you to have a good life. And they did it for four years and they monitored what happened. A brilliant social scientist interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Forget and monitored it. And loads of things happened. No one stopped working apart from some mothers when they gave birth took longer before they went back because they wanted to be with their babies. But no one quit work. But the most important thing for purposes of our conversation There was a massive fall in anxiety and depression. In fact, all mental illnesses, including psychosis and schizophrenia, fell significantly. Um, People people being put away in mental hospitals fell massively, right? And again, that's not rocket science. If you deal with people's loneliness, if you deal with people's financial insecurity, they'll be less depressed and anxious, right? Those are two very practical things. No one can do that as an individual. You can't prescribe yourself to a group and you can't give yourself a guaranteed income unless you inherit a load of money, right? Which very few people do. Um, So again, those are things, that's not an individual solution. That's not a biological solution. That's social, exactly. It's social, but it's top down in one sense, but we can fight for it together, right? It's top down in the sense that we have to all do it together as taxpayers or as, you know, the, the state has to be involved, but it's not top down in another sense. We can fight for it and demand it, right? We can band together and demand that our governments do it. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to ask you about what you call junk values and how they impact mm. anxiety. And you say that like the more that you think you can buy and display your way out of anxiety or depression, the more likely you are to be anxious or depressed. Why are we driven by this belief? Do you think? I had a real breakthrough in understanding anxiety and depression as well. Where I went to interview this Russian guy called Dmitry Leontiev. He's, he's probably the lead, one of the leading um, psychologists in Russia. And um, I went to interview him in Moscow. He said, happiness will come and go in life. You can do some things to make it better, but there's not actually, you don't have that much control over it. He said, all of Russian philosophy is not about happiness. It's about meaning. It's about finding meaning in your life. And he said, when you have meaning, you can tolerate a huge amount of anxiety. And it really helped me because when I get anxious, so I was thinking about this, I was having a conversation with a friend about this today, actually, because I've got a new book coming out in January called Stolen Focus. Don't let me talk about it. My publishers will tase me if I do. But, um, and I was feeling anxious, right? I was feeling anxious about, oh, will people like it? Will it sell? Will it do well? Will it be a failure? And then I remembered what Dimitri said. And actually, when I, if I stay focused on that external stuff, right? Will it sell? Will people like it? Will it get bad reviews or good reviews? I'm just lost in anxiety then. But mm. if I pull back and I go, okay, do you believe the things you wrote in your book are true? So I do. Do you believe the things you wrote in your book are things people need to know? Yes, I do. Do you believe that you worked really hard? Yes, I do. When I stay grounded in those things, actually, I've said something I think is important. I've worked really hard. I've done my absolute best. If people like it or they don't like it, I've said what I think is meaningful. I feel so much less anxious when I see it through that prism. Yeah. And this comes to the question you asked. So everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? Um, I don't say that with any sense of superiority. I lived on KFC for years. But a similar thing has happened with our minds. A kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from like Confucius <laughs> or Schopenhauer, but that, that's basically what they said, right? But weirdly, nobody had ever scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I got to know named Professor Tim Cassidy. You should have him on his podcast. He's a 
amazing man. And he, he, he spent 30 years researching these questions. And he discovered loads of important things in relation to depression and anxiety. There's two in particular. One is the more you think life is about how you look to other people and status and money, the more likely you are to be anxious and depressed by a significant amount. And secondly, he discovered that as a society, as a culture in the Western world, we've become much more driven by those values throughout my lifetime and yours, right? And yeah. um, so it's like, and, and I kept asking, well, why? And he, I go through all the, there's lots of reasons. One is it trains us to look for happiness in all the wrong places, right? Everyone listening knows none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the likes you got on Instagram mm-hmm. and all the shoes you bought, right? You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. But we are trained from the moment we're born by the machinery of capitalism to think that the solution to our unhappiness is to treat yourself, go shopping, buy something, display it on social media to make other people jealous. So partly it's that it degrades our, it trains us to look for happiness in the wrong places. It's a kind of KFC for the soul, right? But secondly, this way of thinking, these junk values, they actually make our relationships worse. There's all this evidence. The more you think life is about money and status, the worse your relationships will be, the more likely they are to break down, the more angry they are and it this is a slightly cheap way of explaining that but it is how it fell into place for me so i apologize for the cheapness of this but in 2009 melania trump went to speak at nyu i don't know why god knows um, <laughs> and one of the students said to her would you have married donald trump if he wasn't rich and she said do you think he would have married me if i wasn't beautiful Wow. So think what that reveals about their relationship, right? She knows that if she lost her looks, she'd be out. He knows if he lost his money and status, he'd be out, right? Or there's an even more horrific example with Trump where he was interviewed by Howard Stern years before he ran for president. And he was asked, would you, would you, still, would you stay with Melania if she was really badly burned in a fire? <laughs> and I apologize for repeating this, but Donald Trump said, it depends, are her tits burned? Oh my God. So disgusting. But but compare that to Barack and Michelle Obama, right? Where whatever you think about the politics of the Trumps and the Obamas, and I'm sure you could all guess what I think, but (laughs) you know, Barack and Michelle Obama would say, well, we love each other even if we got burned in fires, we end up homeless, we lost all our money. Now you can see how having a relationship like Barack and Michelle Obama, that's a relationship that's more likely to endure because it's based on shared values that are meaningful. Whereas having a relationship like Donald and Melania Trump would mean that your relationships would be more likely to be break down, break down. And when you did have them, you wouldn't feel as secure in them. If you look at the exposure to these values through Instagram, if you are constantly breaking from your relationships to display how great they are by posting photos on Instagram, you are becoming more like the Trumps than you should be, right? Yeah. Um, and that's just one example. So I think that gives us some sense. And that was for me, yeah, I mentioned earlier, childhood trauma of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that right about in lost connections childhood trauma was one of the hard ones one of the other ones was junk values i was never um, a particularly materialistic person in the sense of like craving you know expensive clothes or anything i was once um i was once nominated for an award as the worst dressed gay man in britain but <laughs> i but 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 i did crave status and it was never all of my character but it was a much bigger part of my character than i would have liked it to be was about looking clever looking impressive, social media following, all that shit. 
And um, and I realized I was looking for happiness in the wrong places. And as I recalibrated my values, and of course I still have a lot of that in me, we all do, and I probably have more than most people, but as I recalibrated my values, I realized the times when I feel most anxious is when I'm like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I really do. But don't, don't you think though, like it's one thing to acknowledge that, right, worrying about what people think about me or how many likes I have or whatever, I know that that's not going to help me and that's going to lead to more anxiety. But the reason we do have those behaviors goes back to survival. And like, if you, you know, wanting to people to like you, of course you do. Of course you want people to like you because if they didn't like you and you got cast out of your tribe back in the day, you wouldn't have lasted very long. There's a huge, I think you're totally right. There's a huge difference between wanting people to like you and wanting people to envy you or fear you. And I think junk values are much more about, not about forming meaningful connections based on affection, reciprocity, helping each other out. That's not what this is about, right? Um, the, but I also think you're right. So the fancy term for these different ways of thinking about it is intrinsic and extrinsic values. So yeah. um, if you imagine, if you play the piano, if you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's called an intrinsic value. To You're not playing the piano to get anything out of it further down the line. It's just a thing you love. Um, if you play the piano... I don't know, in a dive bar that you hate to pay the rent or because your parents are massively pressuring you because it's their dream for you to be a piano maestro or, I don't know, to post clips on Instagram. Maybe there's some piano fetishist out there, right? Um, those would be extrinsic reasons to play the piano, right? You're not doing it because that thing gives you joy. You're doing it to get something out of it, right? Now, we're all a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic motives and all humans who ever lived. I mean, some people are very extreme at one end. Maybe Gandhi was extreme intrinsic and Trump is very extreme extrinsic. But almost all of us are somewhere in, in, in the middle. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And, and we should be, by the way. You should have some extrinsic values. But I, I think that, that there's, um, this comes back to Professor Cass's research so he discovered that we have become much more driven by these things, as I say, throughout my lifetime, as we're exposed much more to things like advertising and social media. So, of course, there's some natural conflict, but we've been pushed closer to the extreme by the, I mean, think about something as simple as uh, more 18 month old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name, right? So oh, from the yes. moment we're born, and I say that with no disrespect to McDonald's, which is responsible for at least one of my chins. But so from the moment <laughs> we're born, we, like I say, we're immersed in this machinery of capitalism that's very recent and very unusual. And it trains us to think that way. So you're totally right. Just intellectually understanding these things doesn't get you very far. Right. The reason I wanted to understand these causes is because it leads to solutions. So I'll give you two examples of solutions that emerge when you understand this problem. They both come from Professor Kasser. So one of them is kind of social and one of them is more individual. So one thing is, once we know this, we can understand advertising makes us anxious. Okay, we can deal with that, right? I went to Sao Paulo in Brazil. They banned outdoor advertising. They were just like, you know what? Makes us feel like shit. Fucking get rid of it. We don't need it, right? Well, how does it make our lives better? It doesn't. Or think about in London, where I'm from, obviously, <laughs> On the tube a few years ago, it was pre-COVID, I forget when it was, three or four years ago, there was a series of adverts. Um, I don't know if you had them in Ireland. Um, it was for some, I know so little about fitness. I don't even know what it was for, but it was for some fitness product. And it was um, a super buff man and a super lean woman. 
and it said, are you beach body ready? And then an advert, this product, I think it was a protein shake or something. The clear implication being, if you don't look like these people, you ain't ready to go to the beach, right? Which is a message that makes 99.9% of people feel like shit about how they look, right? And there was a big campaign to vandalize these adverts all over London. People were writing on it, advertising shits in your head. And then the mayor of London said, can't just ban them, right? We should be doing stuff like that much more. We should be pushing back against the advertising machinery much more than we do. So that's a social thing. We should have, we should be fighting for really strict advertising regulators that don't allow messages like that. And we should just be banning advertising for most spaces where we are. We just don't do anything good for any of us. Fuck it, get rid of it. Um, so I'd say that for the first thing. I mean, there's lots of things, but I could talk about what you can too. The second one is something I really recommend everyone tries. It helped me so much. So Professor Kasser was involved in pioneering this, 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 this answer to junk values. So it came from a guy called Nathan Dungan. So Nathan, who I interviewed, Nathan's a financial advisor in Minneapolis. And his job is to advise um, middle-class people on how to do budgets, like household budgets. And one day Nathan got called from a school by a school, again, in a kind of middle-class area. And they were like, look, could you come and help us? We've got this problem. Um, the kids in their school were getting obsessed with having the latest iPhone, the latest Nike sneakers, whatever it was. And if their parents couldn't afford it, they were going mental, the kids, and just losing it. And it was causing problems at the school and problems at home. So they said to Nathan, we just come in and just explain budgeting to these kids, right? So Nathan comes in and explains how much money their parents have got and how to budget. And quite quickly, it becomes clear to Nathan, these kids do not give a shit about budgeting, right? They're like, yeah, don't care. I want the iPhone, right? So that's when he, he, he does this adopts this different approach and he teamed up with Professor Kasser to scientifically monitor it. So the way it worked was the kids and their parents came to a meeting. Uh, so they're in groups, it's, it's kids with their parents and you know, obviously the kid is with their parent and there's lots of the kid, paired kids and parents. And they come to this meeting and they had these meetings every couple of weeks for, uh, I forget how long, I think it was six months. And the first meeting, they just say to them, could you make a list of everything you've got to have? They didn't define that. And of course, everyone at first, you know, they put, you've got to have a house, you've got to have a home, you've got to have water and food. But quite quickly, people start listing things you don't have to have for survival, like Nike sneakers. The parents would often put, you know, kind of expensive consumer goods. And when they got to those ones, Nathan said to them, could you just write about how will you, your life be different if you get that thing? Let's say you got the Nike sneakers tomorrow. How would you feel? What was interesting is nobody named the kind of apparent reason for this object. So no one said, I'm a basketball player and I want the Nike sneakers so I can jump higher, right? No one said that. They said things like, well, if I got them, people would envy me. Or if I got them, I would belong to the group. People would want me in their group, right? So in fact, the longing for the consumer object was almost always a displaced longing for some underlying psychological need that wasn't being met. They didn't have to get people to say that out, out loud for very long before they started to reflect on it, right? But, the, but what happened next was the most interesting bit. So then the, they say to the group, right about a moment, you have experienced something meaningful. You've had a sense of meaning in your life, right? 
And I just say to anyone listening, just just pause the podcast for a second and just write on your phone or wherever you are, just write down, don't do this if you're driving, you'll die. Write down, you know, a time you felt meaning and purpose in your life. And people named different things. Some of them named, you know, uh, playing the guitar. For me, it would be writing. Some people it was surfing or taking their kids to the beach or, or um, you know, helping people, a nurse or whatever. Um, and then Nathan said, well, how could you build more of your life around pursuing those, mean, those moments of meaning and purpose and less around pursuing these consumer objects? And they just checked in every couple of weeks. They checked in and they talked about how they were trying to do it. It was like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for junk values, right? And what was fascinating was it was monitored over time. Just having these conversations led to a marked shift in people's values. It led to a reduction in junk values and a rise in meaningful values, which we know wow. leads to less anxiety and depression. So that comes back to, for me, that question that you totally reasonably say, where you go, that you asked me a little while ago, Caroline, which is, well, isn't this just a conflict we all have in us? Absolutely, it's a conflict. It's an inevitable human conflict, right? And there'll always be a conflict between these things. But the culture we live in has loaded the dice for one side, which is the winning of junk values. And what we've got to do is recalibrate the society, our own lives and society, back to more meaningful values. Some of that, so I do this with a group, I have a group of friends on the first of the month. We just check in. We have to do it on Zoom at the moment because of uh, the plague. Um, and, and we just talk about that. We talk about in the last month, how did junk values sneak in? How did it take over? What were your meaningful values? Who did you help this month? What did you do that was good this month? You know, what, what did you do that was the fulfillment of your better values this month? We just talk about it. And just knowing that conversation is coming regularly has such an effect on me because it means when I, like today, when like I was talking to my friend about, you know, the, oh, the book, you know, will people read the book? Will it get good reviews or bad reviews? What will people say? Will people be nasty on social media? All of that. I was just like, well, you know what? I'm going to talk about that on the first. I'll, I'll get to think those things through. It's just a different way, which is different to therapy. I've got a therapist as well, poor man. <laughs> but, you know, that's slightly different to therapy. It's about being connected to your values. And I would really recommend everyone just set up a group with your friends and do that because you live, we live in a culture where you are bombarded with these junk values. Every time you open your phone, every time you go outside your door, it's like a poison being pumped into you. We've got to have mechanisms of self-defense. Oh, so, so powerful. I'm, I'm going to try and start that myself with my friends because I suppose like everyone listening is just trying to do what they, the best they can living in this world, which is like a lot of which we can't control, but like those kind of ideas people mightn't think of that there are things that you can do that will have, you know, might have a shift in how you feel, even though you think, you know, obviously you'd be hopeful that eventually the whole world would cotton on to this idea and, and recalibrate the values at such a high level. Are you hopeful that that might ever happen? You know, one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because I'm gay and I think a lot about, you know, my friend Andrew Sullivan, so a lot of your listeners will know his work, he's a brilliant journalist. So in 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive when that was a death sentence, as far as anyone knew, right? There was no hope in sight that they knew of about treatments. And he, Andrew had just watched his best friend Patrick die of AIDS. And Andrew thought he had a couple of years to live so he quit his job. He was the editor of a magazine called The New Republic. And he went to a place called Provincetown in, in Cape Cod to die. And he decided that before he died, 
he was going to write a book about a completely crazy utopian idea that no one had ever written a book about before. Um, and he was like, I'm never going to live to see this idea implemented. Obviously, no one alive today will ever live to see this idea implemented. But maybe someone somewhere down the line will pick up this idea. The idea that Andrew wrote the first book to ever advocate was gay marriage. Wow. And when I get depressed and I think, God, we're up against these huge forces, right? Um, I try to imagine going back in time to Provincetown when Andrew's writing his book, Virtually Normal, and saying to him, okay, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but 26 years from now, you'll be alive. <laughs> that would have blown his mind. <laughs> you'll be married to a man because that will be legal. And I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing now, when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. And the next day, you'll be invited to a White House that will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to have dinner with the president, to celebrate what you and millions of other gay and straight people have fought for and achieved. And by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? Mm. Every aspect of that would have sounded like ridiculous science fiction be like me saying to you okay caroline so 26 years from now a trans president is going to invite us to smoke crack with her in the oval office right <laughs> not not that we want that i mean the trans president yes the crack no um but you know it would seem ludicrous it happened it happened because enough people understood the problem that gay people have been senselessly persecuted for 2000 years they understood the solution. Let's treat gay people with love and respect and equality. And lots of people fought for it and they didn't give up until they got it. And to me, you know, and that's true of so many things. When we feel pessimistic, there are lots of things that are worse now, but there are many things that are better, right? You know, you don't need me to mansplain this to you, but when my grandmothers were the age that I am now in Switzerland and Scotland, they weren't allowed to have bank accounts in their own name. My Swiss grandmother wasn't allowed to vote. She wasn't allowed to have a job outside her house without her husband's written permission, right? Um, they, were, they were both left school when they were 14 because no one cared about girls and their education, right? And we've still got a long way to go in fighting sexism and misogyny. But my niece's life would be unrecognizable to my grandmother's. And my grandmother's would be really proud of the progress we have made, right? Think about so many areas where we've made things better. And again, how did that happen? didn't happen by magic, didn't happen because people waited for someone at the top to make things better. It happened because ordinary women banded together and they said, fuck this. It makes our lives worse. We don't deserve it. We deserve to be treated better. We're going to fight for something better. And they appealed to people in a spirit of love and compassion, just like gay people did. And gradually it led to significant changes, not enough changes to be sure, but significant changes. So absolutely the world can get better. You're the beneficiary of the world getting better. I'm the beneficiary of the world getting better. Um, you know, I think about something as simple as it was legal for my grandmothers to be raped by their husbands, mm. right? Think about that seems to us rightly insanely barbaric, right? But I knew my grandmothers. This isn't some distant history. I loved my grandmothers, right? This is some distant history. Those things changed because people fought for them. The oh, Margaret Mead, the uh, kind of feminist anthropologist, said, never doubt that a small group of determined people can change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. Absolutely, we can overcome these things. And in a funny way, and this will sound like a weird thing to say, and I say it carefully, 
the fact that so many people are depressed and anxious, while horrendously painful for those of us who've had depression and anxiety, is a sign in our favor, right? Because actually, if something's gone wrong with most, the lives of most people are being diminished by the factors that I write about in Lost Connections, right? That means it's easier to build a coalition to deal with those problems, right? Because instead of saying, oh, there's some, there's this poor minority of people and they're biologically broken and they're, you know, and they're diminished and, and you know, just have pity on them and try to help them. But actually we go, you know what? A lot of these factors that I write about, if you don't have control over your work, you're more likely to be depressed and anxious. But most people are being made unhappy by lack of control over their work, even the ones who aren't depressed and anxious. Loneliness, most people, and God knows COVID supercharged it, but even before COVID, huge increases in loneliness. That makes some of us depressed and anxious. It diminishes everyone who experiences it. You go through all these causes, you know, huge numbers of people are being affected by them. Financial insecurity, you know, half of all Americans have less than $500 in savings through no fault of their own. Because the whole economy, and this has happened in Ireland, is, you know, again, you don't need me to tell you, it's not as extreme as in the US, but, you know, wealth was fucking hoovered to the rich and yeah. away from middle class and working class people. That's one of the reasons why anxiety and depression are so high. We can reclaim that, right? That was a political change that happened because the rich, you know, rigged the political system. We can reclaim the political system, right? So, uh, sorry, I thought this is a very long answer and I've had <laughs> so much caffeine. You cannot imagine. I've had enough caffeine today to kill a whole field of cows. But <laughs> you see the point I'm making? We should be profoundly optimistic about if we fight, right? If we don't fight, the problem will keep getting worse, right? Because the forces that benefit from this, forces of advertising, the, the super rich, all these forces, they'll they're will never going to stop defending their rights, right? They, they they never stop. They never have a rest for one day, right? But if the rest of us band together and fight for our rights, and we understand that anxiety and depression are largely signals that something has gone wrong, if we stop pathologizing this signal by saying it's a sign of weakness or craziness or purely a biological malfunction, and we start listening to this signal and respecting this signal, then we can use these problems to fuel the fight for solutions. Oh God, you have me all fired up now. <laughs> I feel like I <laughs> leave my house and like get a picket and start a group and throw my phone in the river. And cause I know, I know, I just know that so many, so much of the source of my anxiety is just being fueled by things that I feel are beyond my control, like social media and things that I feel like a slave to, but I do have some agency there. We do as one, one individual have agency and then together, you know, God knows what we can do to, to address these issues that are so collectively experienced. So I can't thank you enough for such really insightful conversation and for sharing so many of your insights with so much passion and you're such an incredible storyteller. So well, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to listen to this, so a lot of the people that I've talked about, like Vincent Felitti, the amazing doctor who did that research on childhood trauma, or Tim Kasser, who did the research on um, uh, junk values, or just a whole, like all the experts we've talked about, you can listen for free to the audio of a lot of my, of some of my conversations with those people. If you go to www.thelostconnections.com, um, and you can also find out about the audio book and the book and you can listen to the experts i spoke to about addiction on the website for my other book which is chasing the scream 
com, and uh, you can see where to follow me on social media and everything. You're, so you are on social media, even though you probably don't give it too much time because it's junk values and stuff. Exactly. I, I use it to broadcast, but if I'm honest, but not to receive. So, like, yeah, I, I'll tweet things, but I, I never look at anyone's responses. I almost never look at what anyone is saying away from my responses. I just, you know, it's... Yeah. We're Make all going to be dead really you. soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, we're going to be dead really soon. And in the meantime, let's do things that don't make us feel like shit. It's very simple, really. Um, Congratulations on the book and best of luck with the next book. Can't wait to see it in in January. I know we will talk hopefully about that again when the time comes. I would love that. Um, Hooray. Thank you, you, Johan. It was lovely. Oh, totally my pleasure. Cheers, Caroline. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.